Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all that you do for us. Father, we thank you for the rain that you have sent to this dry land. And Father, we see your hand in that and thank you for answering our prayers. Father, we thank you for being a God who comforts us even in the midst of life's trials. Father, help us to be people who come out of our trials wanting to comfort others so that we can share your grace with them. Father, thank you for giving us each other because without you we could not go through this life and without each other, Father, we can't imagine what it would be like to try to navigate life's trials. For this we praise you. We We pray this in the name of Jesus who is the Christ. Amen. Well, today we're continuing our latest sermon series, which we have entitled, Say What? Does the Bible really say that? And during this series, we're examining different cliches that are frequently offered by Christians as wise words. Frequently offered as wise words, especially to other people who are going through a difficult season in their life. These are the kinds of sayings and phrases that you might see at the Christian bookstore written on a t-shirt or on a mug, the types of cliches that you might read on a bumper sticker or read on a poster or read on Facebook. And each week what we're doing is we're taking one of these cliches and we're asking the question, does the Bible really say that? And the reason why we're focusing on these Christian cliches is because they are so prevalent because they are so frequently offered as wise counsel. And that can be a problem. It can be a problem because much of what is offered as Christian wisdom isn't very wise. And much of what is offered as Christian wisdom isn't very helpful. And the reason it's not very wise and it's not very helpful is because it's not very biblical. A lot of these phrases sound like they could come from the Bible, but they don't come from the Bible. A lot of these phrases sound like they could be helpful, but it turns out they're really not very helpful. So during this series, we're discovering what the Bible really says by first focusing on what the Bible doesn't say. If you'll remember, we started this series by asking if the Bible really says that we should just follow our hearts. And we found out that the Bible says we shouldn't follow our untrustworthy hearts but we should instead follow our completely trustworthy God. And then last week we asked if the Bible really says that God has a plan for our lives. And we saw that for most of us, life is filled with many options and it has very little clarity. And we saw that that's okay because God has given us a clear purpose for our lives instead of a clear and meticulous plan for our lives. And then today we're going to consider the cliche, God will never give you more than you can handle. And once again, we're going to ask the question, does the Bible really say that? God will never give you more than you can handle. That's a saying that's frequently offered up as encouragement to someone who is feeling overwhelmed by life's struggles. For example, the single mom who has a demanding boss and unreliable co-workers and a broken down car and sick children. 
She might in tears confess to her friends that she isn't sure that she can take it anymore. And one of her well-meaning friends will likely offer this encouragement. Well, I know times are hard, but remember, God will never give you more than you can handle. Or consider the middle-aged man who's in the middle of moving his mom into a nursing home. And he's just been laid off from his middle management job, just as his middle child is being deployed to the Middle East. And then he shares with his friends that he isn't sure that he can cope with everything that's going on in his life. He'll likely hear this well-intentioned advice. Well, I know things are tough, but don't forget that God will never give you more than you can handle And we understand, don't we, that these well-intentioned people are really trying to help. We understand what they're trying to do, don't we? They're trying to provide encouragement. Because it can seem encouraging to be told that God will allow the floods of life to come right up below your nose, but won't allow those floods to go any farther. It can seem encouraging to tell someone that God will allow the trials of life to almost but not quite overwhelm them. God will never give you more than you can handle. But I have to wonder, is it really encouraging to hear that? And I have to wonder, is it really biblical to say that? Much like last week's cliche, this week's saying has a very clear origin story. And its origin is in the phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle. It seems like it's in the Bible, and most of us would swear it's in the Bible until we go searching for it in the Bible. The origin of the phrase has a book, it has a chapter, and it has a verse. So listen to the origin of first, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I want you to know I love that verse. And it's an extremely encouraging verse. But this verse is a promise from God about temptations. It's not a promise from God about trials. What this verse promises is that we will never, that we will never be put in a situation where the only thing that we can do is disobey our God. What this verse promises is that in every temptation, not sinning is an option. We know that we can't avoid temptation, but this verse promises that we can always escape the temptation. And because God always provides a way out from temptation, we can't ever honestly say, the devil made me do it. And this verse also implies something else. It implies that God is constantly working in our lives to keep Satan at bay. We know about Satan, right? He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a murderer. And if Satan was left to his own, he would overwhelm us with temptation. He would put us in situations where there is no escape, where there's no way out. 
I recently heard it illustrated this way. Picture a mama cat, if you will, with a young kitten in her mouth. And she's stuck on a median on a busy New York City street. And she desperately is trying to get across the street to the safety of the sidewalk on the other side. But every time she starts into the street, another car comes whizzing by. So she's desperately trying to get across. And there's no way to go across. No way without suffering certain death. Well, a New York City policeman sees what's happening. And the New York City policeman blows his whistle, raises his hand, steps out into the traffic, stops all four lanes of traffic... And the cat, with her baby, crosses quickly and safely to the other side. Quickly and safely, but completely oblivious to the fact that the full power and authority of the New York City Police Department just stopped traffic for her so that she could cross safely to the other side. I think we're a lot like that cat See, we have no idea how many times God has raised his hand and stopped Satan, used his full power and authority to provide us the clear path that we need to cross safely to the other side. So the Bible doesn't say that God will never allow us to be tempted. The Bible does say that God will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle. But does it say that God will never allow us to experience more of life than we can handle? Does the Bible really say that? Well, before we look more closely at whether God will never give you more than you can handle is really in the Bible, let's consider for a moment whether it's really encouraging. Let me ask you this, is it really encouraging to tell that single mom that we talked about that God won't give her more than she can handle? Is it really encouraging to tell that middle-aged man who just lost his job that God won't give him more than he can handle? I think instead of encouraging, I think really what may be going on is that's just a socially acceptable way to tell someone that they need to cowboy up. They need to stop whining. Is it really a way to just tell the mom that she may feel that she's overwhelmed by life's trials, but she can't really be overwhelmed because God would never give her more than she could handle. Isn't it just really a polite way of telling the middle-aged man that he may feel that he's drowning in life's flood, but he can't really be drowning because God would never give him more than he can handle. See, in many ways, saying that God will never give you more than you can handle is just a polite rephrasing of common playground taunts. Is it really encouraging to tell someone who's overwhelmed by life's trials that the real problem is they just aren't strong enough? Is it really encouraging to tell someone who's drowning in life's trials that the real problem is that they're really not trying hard enough? Is it really encouraging to tell someone who's being crushed by life's trials that the real problem is that they just don't want it bad enough? See, no matter how well-intentioned, when you tell overwhelmed, drowning, crushed people that God will give them no more than they can handle ever, that isn't encouraging. 
And the reason it isn't encouraging is because it isn't biblical. The Bible doesn't say that God will never give you more than you can handle. The Bible says there's always a way to avoid sinning. But it doesn't say that there's a way to avoid suffering. Because there's no way in this life to avoid suffering. That's the clear and consistent message from the third chapter of the Bible to the very end of the Bible. Suffering is a tragic fact of human life in a fallen world. We know the tragic story, don't we? We remember that Satan was on the prowl in the garden. We remember that Adam and Eve rebelled and ate the forbidden fruit. And we also know that at that time, life in this world changed forever. Changed from paradise to suffering. God gave us just a hint of what's in store for Adam and Eve in their life and what's in store for every man and woman who follows Adam and Eve, what is in store for them in their lives. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. God speaks to Adam and Eve and he says to Eve, he says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. And then he turns to Adam and he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. And from that time on, there's been no way to avoid the suffering that life brings. It's important for us to remember that God doesn't order our suffering. He doesn't give us the suffering. No, our suffering in this life is the consequence of living in this fallen world. Living in this fallen world with Satan still on the prowl. With all people free to make consequential decisions. We can't avoid suffering. And not only is there no way to avoid suffering, most of us will go through at least one season in our lives where we'll be overwhelmed, where we'll be drowned, where we'll be crushed by life's trials. In fact, I know there are people here today in this place right now who are overwhelmed. I know there are people here who are drowning right now, who are being crushed right now by life's trials. And it isn't because they aren't strong enough. And it isn't because they aren't trying hard enough. And it isn't because they don't want it bad enough. Instead, it's because our fallen world has overwhelmed them. It has crushed them. It's what crushed Job. Job described as a blameless and upright man who feared God and shunned evil. Job said this. He said, what I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Job was the greatest man among all the people in the east. He was also overwhelmed by life's trials. 
And it wasn't because Job wasn't strong enough. And it wasn't because Job wasn't trying hard enough. And it wasn't because Job didn't want it bad enough. It's what caused David, God's chosen king, to write this. He said, many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. David, the man after God's own heart, was drowning in life's trials. And it wasn't because he wasn't strong enough. And it wasn't because he wasn't trying hard enough. And it wasn't because he didn't want it bad enough. It's what caused Paul, God's apostle and chosen evangelist to the Gentiles, to write this. He said, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Paul the Apostle was crushed by life's trials. And it wasn't because he wasn't strong enough, and it wasn't because he wasn't trying hard enough, and it wasn't because he just didn't want it bad enough. And like Job, and like David, and like Paul, we go through seasons where life is too much. Overwhelming seasons, drowning seasons, crushing seasons. And God doesn't send those seasons, but God uses those seasons. God doesn't order our suffering, but boy, he does use our suffering. And he uses our suffering in at least three important ways. First, he uses our suffering to teach us to rely on him and him alone. Paul, after writing about being under great pressure, far beyond his ability to endure, so that he despaired even of life, Paul then wrote this. He said, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. God uses our suffering seasons. He uses them to teach us to rely on him. The Bible really does say that. Second thing that God does, God uses our suffering seasons to teach us to rely on each other. A little earlier in that same chapter, Paul also wrote this. He said, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Did you catch that? God comforts us in our overwhelming seasons. And he comforts us so that we can comfort others just like God has comforted us. God brings us through these overwhelming seasons so we can help each other through 
the coming overwhelming seasons. We're in this together. Followers of Jesus Christ navigate life's trials together. It's a team effort. And when we're going through a season of suffering, God brings his grace through other people. And he especially brings his grace through other people who understand those overwhelming seasons. And they understand them because they've lived through their own overwhelming seasons. God uses suffering seasons to teach us to rely on each other. The Bible really does say that. And finally, God uses our suffering seasons to develop in us an enduring faith, a lasting faith. That's really the point of what James says in James chapter 1 and verse 2. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God uses our suffering seasons to develop enduring faith. When we rely on God and when we rely on each other in the midst of life's floods, we emerge on the other side. And we emerge on the other side with a more mature faith. We emerge on the other side with a more complete faith. We emerge on the other side with a more lasting faith. We emerge on the other side with a faith that's ready to face life's next flood. God uses our overwhelming seasons to develop enduring faith. The Bible really does say that. We know life will bring suffering seasons. For some of us, life is bringing a suffering season right now. And those seasons hurt, don't they? And those seasons leave scars, don't they? But we need to understand that those scars can become our story. Those scars can become our story because those scars tell the story of God's grace which brought us through the flood. So let's be people who let our scars, who use our scars. Let our scars become our stories of God's grace through the storm. Let's let our stories of surviving life's floods bring grace to each other. Bring grace to each other as together we face the storms that we know will come. I want to end our time together today by asking God to redeem our scars, to redeem our stories. I want to pray that God will use our scars and use our stories to bring his grace and his comfort to other people who are facing life's floods. I want to pray that God will use our scars and use our stories to bring glory to his name. But before I do that, I want to do something for all the people who are here this morning who are overwhelmed right now by life's trials. Because I know when we are in the midst of life's trials, we often feel alone in our suffering. 
And I want those people to know that they are not alone. So I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you some questions. I'm going to ask you to silently answer them to yourselves. Simply yes or no. First question. In the last three years, have you lost a family member or a close friend? Yes or no? In the last three years, have you or someone in your family gone through the terrible pain of divorce? Yes or no? In the last three years, have you or someone in your family dealt with a frightening medical disease? In the last three years, have you or someone in your family dealt with an addiction? In the last three years, have you or someone in your family dealt with severe financial stress? In the last three years, have you or someone in your family dealt with the consequences of mental illness? In the last three years, have you dealt with the stress of serving your aging parents? In the last three years, have you had a child or a grandchild go to a very dark place? I'm going to ask you to do something else. If you answered yes to any of those questions, I'm going to ask you to stand where you are. So if you answered yes to any of those questions, stand up right now. Look around. You're not alone. And if you're fortunate enough to not be standing right now, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. And the reason I'm going to ask you to stand, because we are not in the floods of life alone. We're in the floods of life together. Look around. We're scarred people. But we're not alone people. And let's use our scars and let them become the story, our story of God's grace. Let's pray. Father, help us to rely on you in the midst of life storms. Father, help us to rely on each other as we go through life's floods. Father, help us to emerge on the other side with a more mature, more complete, and enduring faith in you. And Father, I ask you that you'll use our scars and use our stories to bring comfort to others facing life's floods. And Father, I ask you to use our scars and use our stories to bring glory to your name. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.